Uh, hi, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew, and I'm the Youth and Missions Director here at Christ Central. Today, it's my great privilege to bring to us God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 78? If you don't, I believe it'll be overhead, and please follow along. But Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. So that'll be God's Word for us this morning. Chap- Psalm chapter 78, verses 1 through 8. A Maskil of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you join me as we pray and we ask for God to to open our eyes this morning to what he has to say to us. Father, we thank you uh, that every Sunday we have the privilege to hear you speak to us. And so today we gather to hear from you. We gather to worship you. And as we do, would you make Jesus more clear We pray these things in his name. Amen. About 10 years ago in uh, 2008, there were the Summer Olympics in Beijing. And uh, there was an event called the Men's 400-Meter Relay. And Team USA was looking pretty good. They were considered one of the, the top contenders, the favorites to maybe take even the gold. And this was during the preliminary race, right? There's a race before the final race. Even qualified to run the final race, you got to do pretty well in the prelims. And so there's a third runner on Team USA running the prelims. The name's Darvis Patton. And as he's rounding the corner to pass the baton to Tyson Gay, right? He's the anchor. He's the one where they're like, all right, as long as he gets it, we're looking pretty good. And right when they pass, when he's passing the baton, he drops it. And it was devastating, right? Because if you know anything about the 400-meter relay, if you drop the baton, you're disqualified. And so Team USA didn't even get to run in the finals that year. And it was a huge upset. So in that one moment, all of that hard work, four years of training, you know, all of that blood, sweat, and tears went down the drain when that baton was dropped because of one bad handoff. And in the same way, Psalm 78 this morning reminds us the importance of one generation making that proper spiritual handoff to the next. Not dropping the baton because if it's not properly made, if that handoff's not made, we have a whole lot more to lose than a race. Right? We're talking about matters of eternal life, salvation, heaven and hell. Now today in our passage in verse 8, we read about this father's generation. Don't be like them, right? A stubborn and rebellious 
generation who lost sight of God, who forgot who God was to them, what he has done for them. Now, how does a generation get to that point? How do they get to a place where like an entire generation just loses sight of God, just forgets about him? And to me, the most obvious explanation, it's, it must be this, that the baton was dropped, that the handoff wasn't made. Now, why didn't they pass it on? I just want to explore maybe some reasons. And I think it's, it's safe to say it's probably similar to the challenges we face, right? There's this natural tendency for us to really focus on my group, my generation, right? It's the natural sinful side of us where it's about what I get. And, and it's easy to think the church exists for me in my life stage, my generation. I think I really don't like the sentiment that I've, that I've heard, uh, but, but there are times where I hear from married couples where, you know, when they get married and then they have friends that are single and then they slowly stop hanging out with their friends and sometimes they say things like, ah, oh, they're, they're too young. They, they, they're like the same age. And they're like, ah, oh, they don't get it. They're not like us. Man, marriage is challenging. They just don't understand. And so they can do their own thing. We're just going to do ours now. This us versus them mindset, right? Us versus them. And it's easy to build up these dividing walls. And if we keep going about things this way, we're going to lose a lot of people on the way, perhaps even in an entire generation. And so to prevent this from happening, I really want us as a church, this is something that's been on my heart, but I really want us to understand the value and the importance of intergenerational relationships. In other words, relationships across generations, across life stages. You see, because God is the God of generations, we, as his church, as Christ Central, we must bridge the generation gaps. I love how even embedded in the Old Testament title for God, right, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's three generations right there, right? God is the God of generations. And so intergenerational relationships matter in order for us to make that proper spiritual handoff. So today I want to explore just three things about intergenerational relationships and the benefits that they bring to us as a church First, that they give us perspective. They give us perspective. Secondly, that they provide a picture of family. And third, that they lead us to praise. So easy to remember, three Ps, perspective, a picture, and praise. And we're going to start with perspective. Intergenerational relationships give us perspective. Right? Perspectives to see things in other ways, to learn. And, and oftentimes this naturally comes from just the older, those who are more experienced, reaching out to the younger. Right? In Titus chapter 2, the first couple verses talks about these church dynamics, how older men should reach out to and teach younger men. Right? They should teach them self-control and wisdom. And of course, we know younger men have a hard time with self-control. And it also... Uh, says older women teach the younger women, right, to grow in character, to grow in virtues. And it's this interaction between the old and the young as the old pass down their wisdom, that they've walked the road before them. And so they can share so much life experience. I think about myself. Um, about a year ago, I was uh, engaged to my now wife, 
And as I was engaged, you know, I'm trying to prepare for marriage. I have no idea what it's going to be like. Never been married before. So I'm trying to think, how, how can I set myself up to succeed in marriage? Right? And so once, after one staff meeting, we go to lunch, and I'm asking some of our staff, so what would you tell me? What would you tell yourself before you got married? What's some advice? And in, some, in somewhat of a humorous response, one, one of our staff members looks at me and says, Andrew, in marriage, someone always dies. And I was like, wait, whoa, what's going on with your marriage, right? But, but then everyone kind of started chiming in, like, you know, you're right. Someone always dies. You got to die to yourself. And it's like, ah, okay, that makes sense. Someone always dies to their own desires, right? If, someone, if you have a couple that is fighting or they have different views, somebody has to compromise. And a lot of times that's uncomfortable. It feels like you're dying. And so it's through these conversations with older people who have walked the road that I've been now walking that shaped my perspective and my expectations on marriage. And so I went into marriage knowing it's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. You're going to feel like you're dying a lot. And I can tell you now, about a little bit over a year into our marriage, Michelle and I, we do a lot of dying. We do a lot of dying to ourselves. But that's a good thing, right? Because the more you die, the more Jesus resurrects you again and again to be more like him. It's a very sanctifying experience. And so we learn a lot from those who've gone before us. Now, of course, the, the, the burden of learning is definitely on the younger. But I would say the younger have a lot to even teach us, the older generations. I think about uh, my time in Paraguay recently where one of the pastors, Pastor Christian, he has this two-year-old daughter. So cute, this two-year-old daughter. And she like talks decently well, but, you know, as they, he shares about how he learns from her so much as they pray together. And her prayers are so basic, right? He just like basic prayers of thanksgiving. God, thank you for the pencil. Thank you for the water bottle. Thank you for the napkin. Right? It's these very silly kind of mundane things. But, but then he shared that from that, he, he learns the beauty of this childlike faith that appreciates even the little things, the things that he now so often takes for granted, that we often take for granted. And he realizes, wow, there are so many things that God gives us that we feel just entitled to. And it's this little girl who, who reminded him of how even these little blessings are gifts from God. And so we have a lot to learn from each other, a lot of perspective that can be gained from each other. Now, second point I want to talk about is a picture, how intergenerational relationships gives a picture of family. Now, some of you might be here saying, wait a second, right? In Psalm 78 verse 5, it talks about how fathers have to pass down the teachings of God and, and the mighty works of God to their children. But, but Andrew, I'm not a father, I'm not a mother, I'm not a parent, so I'm exempt. I don't got to do this. Now, before you, you think that's the case, I want to see what Jesus does. That's so revolutionary in the New Testament. This is some game-changing stuff, right? In the New Testament, Jesus, what he does is he redefines the nature of family for Christians. He redefines it. In Matthew 12, 50, I believe our brother Dinko shared a couple weeks back on the, 
on how the church is a family, and he shared, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, right? And so Jesus, even when his family is there, they're coming to greet him and, and see him preaching, and he sees them coming, right? He's, they're in earshot, and he says, my family is basically those who follow God, right? That's crazy. That's revolutionary. In Wayne Meek's book on the first urban Christians, he writes this, one of the most stinging critiques ancient Rome made about Christianity was that it destroyed the family. There's no more cherished value in Roman society than the family. Every Roman institution depended on it. The Romans rightly understood the Christian faith as a threat to the family because Christianity advocated the subordination of family loyalty to one's loyalty to the new Christian family. So in places like ancient Rome and elsewhere where family is so important and where Christianity is really not looked upon highly. If you've been on short-term missions, you know there's a, to places that are experiencing intense persecution. You know it's not easy to be a Christian in those places because you have everything to lose from your biological family. Right? That they might disown you. That they might kick you out of the house and you, you'll be homeless and you'll have to fend for yourself. Now, who would join something like that then? Who would join Christianity in that kind of a situation where you have everything to lose, where everything is on the line? And of course, people did, right? In fact, a lot of people would say that it's through, during these times of persecution that Christianity grew the most. Now, how does this happen? I would say, of course, a lot of it, yeah, if God can do amazing things and when someone gets to know God as Father, completely changes their life, and they'll give everything up. But I would go so far as to also say that church makes it a whole lot easier to be a Christian in those situations if the church provides a true picture of family. Now, I love this verse. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 to 30. It's when the disciples tell uh, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive, now get this, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children with, and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So we might expect, all right, yeah, you might have to give up everything, but it'll be worth it because you'll get eternal life in the end, right? But I remember one day reading this, that really caught my eye. Wait a second, hundredfold in this life, in this life right now. And you see people who are leaving their families to lose everything. Jesus' point is you're actually going to gain a whole lot more. You're going to gain way more. And I love that he even includes houses and lands in there, right? Homes and lands. It's the idea that you might, even, you might get kicked out, you might lose your home. But guess what? As long as there's families in the church that have houses and lands, they're going to look out for you. Because that's what family does. We support each other. We're there for each other. We're there to help each other in times of need. And this is such a beautiful picture that today 
we really need to capture. And it's such an opportunity that we have today because in a day with so many broken families, in a day where people are so desperate to see this beautiful picture of people loving each other unconditionally and being a true family, this is such a powerful opportunity to witness to the world. And as we engage each other intergenerationally, as we have fathers and mothers, sons, spiritual sons and daughters and brothers and sisters in this place, the family of God, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't want to be a part of something like that? Lastly, our third point, praise. How intergenerational relationships lead us to praise. I like how the NIV translates verse 4. And it reads, we will not hide them from their descendants, right? The the mighty works of God, what he's done. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. The praiseworthy deeds. The praises of God. Right? As a historic faith, we pass down the praises of God, the praiseworthy deeds that he's done in the scriptures, in our lives. And today I want to look at the rest of Psalm 78. I know it's a pretty long chapter. We only read the first eight verses. I'd encourage you in your own time, maybe throughout the week, take some time to read the rest. But if not, I'll summarize it for us right now. And a lot of these verses, they have to do with the history of Israel, the Old Testament. What were these praiseworthy things that the fathers forgot? And so there's three sections that highlight three sins. Three sins of the Israelites from verses 9 to 72. And we're going to break it down real quick and see just what happened. The first section, verses 9 to 33, you have God as the one who delivers his people out of Egypt. Right? And this is a big event in the Old Testament. This is a salvation event, right, where God leads his people out of slavery. He performs the miracles of the plagues. And, and Pharaoh, who's enslaving the Israelites, finally relents, lets them go. And as they're passing over, they come to the Red Sea. And then God does this crazy thing, right? He splits the Red Sea so the Israelites can cross over dry land. And this is this amazing, crazy, miraculous thing that God does that showcases his power. And then you got the wilderness wanderings, right? Israel, after crossing, as God is leading them into the land that should be theirs, they're in the wilderness. And things go south real fast. The first sin, verse 17 and 20, the people respond with unfaithfulness in the wilderness, right? They start grumbling, they rebelled against God, and they start complaining about food. They start complaining about the food, and they begin to stop believing in God's goodness. They start to test him, and they're like, God, we want meat. We want some meat. Why'd you take us out of Egypt, right? Why'd you bring us here where now we can't even enjoy our food? We'd rather be slaves. How ungrateful. And as a result, right, what, how does God respond? He responds. He actually does give them meat. But his anger is also kindled. And he kills many of them. And then what happens? Second section, verses 34 to 55. When God's anger is kindled, you don't mess with God, right? You don't try to talk back to God. And they learn that real quick. So they're like, okay, I'm so, we're sorry. We messed up. We repent. Forgive us. And they turn back to God. They start worshiping him again. But it's not long after 
that they lose their way again. And so we get the second sin, verse 41 and 42. They tested God again and again, provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from their foe. So they forgot about his power. They forgot about what he's capable of. And they just lost sight again. In their forgetfulness, they became unfaithful. And you can guess what happened. God responds in anger. But God, such a merciful God, he doesn't fully wipe them out, right? He restrains his anger still. And now let's see the third section, what happens. Verse 56 to 64. The people turn again to worshiping God, but then they lose sight. They lose sight of him. And this time it's really bad. Verse 58 tells us this third sin, they just straight up engage in idol worship. They just worship other gods. They set up these high places. They're setting, giving offerings to these other gods. And it's just pure out idolatry. And God is provoked to jealousy. He's like, all right, you guys want to worship other gods? Then I'm out. And he utterly rejects the Israelites for some time. And you can imagine without God to defend them, to be with them, the Israelites They get crushed. They get stomped on by the neighboring nations around them, the enemies around them. I I, I love how Psalm 78 kind of ends with this weird, interesting last section, verses 65 to 72. So God, again, doesn't utterly abandon his people. He returns and he says, you know, I'm going to give you a temple that represents, I'm going to be with you guys. I'm going to stick with you guys, and I'm even going to raise up a king king from the shepherd boy David who will lead you guys in faithfulness and uprightness and then it ends and then Psalm 78 ends kind of this hopeful tone that David is going to solve it all for us but for those of us who know the Old Testament this is ominous feeling this lingering question like hold on what if this pattern continues though what if David fails What if the temple gets destroyed? And for those of you who read the rest of the Old Testament, you know exactly that that is what happens. Right? That is what happens. And because of this continual failure of God's people, God's got to do something greater. God's got to do something even more glorious. He has to do something even more amazing. He would have to come himself. Jesus would have to come and live the perfect life of obedience that we and the Israelites just couldn't live. And I want to show you guys something really cool. In in Matthew 4, we're going to lay Matthew 4 alongside Psalm 78. And Matthew 4 is about the temptations of Jesus, how Satan starts to tempt him in the wilderness. And this is what happens. So first, there's three temptations. The first has to do with food. And I want you to know, as Jesus is fasting and he's hungry, where is he? He's in the wilderness, right? Like the Israelites, we're in the wilderness. And as he's fasting, he's hungry, Satan says, Jesus, why don't you just turn these stones into bread and you'll be good. And you can fill your belly. And unlike the Israelites who kept complaining about food, who kept grumbling about food, Jesus responds by saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he resists Satan's temptation. He trusts God and his word above all else. Secondly, second temptation has to do with power. Where Satan 
brings Jesus to this, the highest point of this temple, and he says, just throw yourself off, and we'll see the power of God, right? If, you know, God's your father, he'll protect you. You'll be fine. He won't let you get hurt. Why don't you just do that and test God? And unlike the Israelites who forgot about God's power, forgot what he did for them, and who tested God again and again, Jesus responds by saying, God should not be put to the test. And he trusts in God and his power. And lastly, the third temptation has to do with idol worship. Right? Finally, Satan entices Jesus. He tries to entice Jesus by showing right, everything that the light touches can be your kingdom. Right? If you just bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you just worship me. And unlike the Israelites who engaged in idol worship, who just straight up turned away from God to worship other gods, Jesus responds by worshiping God and serving him alone. So you see, the amazing thing is, is this is the mightier, greater thing that, that God is doing in history. We're, the, uh, we're in verse 2, right? It says the dark sayings, the parables of old, trying to make sense of what God is doing in history. It's all made clear here on this side of history when Jesus comes and he fulfills Psalm 78. Right? The, the disobedience of Israelite, the Israelites are summarized in these three sins, three sections we went over. And then the obedience of Jesus is summarized in those three temptations and how you resist them. This is the amazing work of God, that he would be perfect when we couldn't, when there's no way we could have, where we're just like the Israelites who rebel again and again, and then Jesus would, in our place, take our punishment, right? He would face the full-out wrath and anger of God, unrestrained, the full wrath of God in our place. And he would die on a Roman cross to make all those who believe in him, you and I in this church, who follow him, his own, his family, that his blood would run through all our veins and unite us as a family. This is the praiseworthy news that we need to be passing down to the next generation. That he, Jesus, is the greater temple. He's the greater king. He's the perfect shepherd, infinitely greater than King David. And he's the one that we celebrate even today as he continues to work. I'm so blessed and so thankful for the stories of grace and the testimonies that so many of you have shared with me and that I've heard because it reminds us of the mighty and amazing things God is still doing even now even in our lives now. And as we pass these down, as we share these stories with each other, the mighty works of God, would that lead us, lead us to praise? Now, I just want to conclude by way of a couple application points of how we can be a more intergenerational church where we engage each other across life stages, across ages. And there are, of course, a lot of ministries that you can get involved in we have children's ministry, youth ministry, college ministry, young adult ministry. These are all things. Of course, they're life stage. They're, they're titled as a life stage. But we want people in different life stages serving, interacting. And this is a great way to serve our younger brothers and sisters, perhaps our spiritual sons and daughters. And I want to give this disclaimer. It's easy to just treat it like a service or a program. Like we're just running some program. But I challenge you guys to look at it differently. 
that this is time of family, family time, of where we get to disciple and mentor our younger brothers, our younger sisters, our spiritual sons and daughters. I pray and I hope we can start seeing each other that way, more of a, from a lens of family. There are also uh, some informal ways that we can serve or that we can minister to each other intergenerationally, right? One, one way, just even after church, even today, get to know someone from a different generation. Get to know someone from a different life stage. Take that risk, maybe asking them about, uh, you, you might think that they're way older or way younger and get it wrong and it would be awkward, but that's okay, right? It's much better to have some awkwardness than nothing happening at all. And no, I want you guys to know that even in the awkwardness of sometimes engaging different generations that seem to have no commonalities with us, that seem to be so different, that have different opinions and, and different ideas and thoughts on things, that maybe some think Michael Jordan is the greatest player and others like me maybe think LeBron James could be in that argument. You know, we might have different opinions and ideas, maybe not a lot in common with, but that's going to make us have to love more maturely. We're going to have to ask more questions. We're going to have to work to labor for that common point that we can talk about things. And of course, as a church, that, that main commonality that unites us all is none other than the one we worship. And as we build intergenerational relationships, oftentimes Christ is going to have to be that much more central to our conversations as a commonality between us. So again, our God is a God from generations, from generation to generation. And may we, Christ Central, be that church that bridges those generation gaps, that engage each other intergenerationally so that we really start to learn different perspectives and that we can provide a beautiful picture of family. And that as we do that, that it would all lead to his praise so that we might not drop that spiritual baton, that we might make the proper handoff to the next generation. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you bring us together and that you died for us to make us a family. And we pray that Christ Central might be a place that really gives that picture, that we would grow in, our way, in the way we interact intergenerationally because we prioritize and care about the next generation, not losing sight, not forgetting the amazing God that we worship and we follow. Would you do that work here, and would Christ Central be a church that you're proud of? We pray these things in Jesus' name.